Uh, what up, guys and girls? It is Bobby. And it's Sean. And we are here. Still. We're here. Uh, here around, I guess this is here around three now. We've done this a couple weeks steady. We're still thinking, you know, if, if this podcast is going to stick around after 60 episodes, you know, it's, uh, I don't know, it just feels like it's going back and forth. Yeah. We're kidding. We're always going to be here. Whenever we get around to it. Whenever yeah, it whenever we get around to it. Again, if there's something in the news worth talking about, we'll talk about it because we're the only voices that you can trust. Um, that that was one of our our things that I think we were legally uh, required to state was that everything we say on this podcast is uh, completely true, no faulty facts. But uh, we are sponsoring uh, this podcast uh, from our friends at Ten Thousand uh, again. Go check out their clothing line. We love the tactical shorts. Really great company. They love veterans. Uh, use the code Cronus15 to get uh, 15% off of your sales. And uh, yeah, we've talked about them several times on the podcast. We wear their stuff all the time. Yeah, definitely. And also, don't forget to apply for the scholarship. Uh, like we have been saying, it is $2,500 uh, of essentially free money with maybe an hour's worth of work. So... You know, get it. Please apply. Get after it. We have money, and we want to give it to you. Yeah, yeah. So, get your stuff in. Uh, Bobby, though, we didn't talk about it the other week. Did you hear about the information with General Milley saying that he he was going to resign, and the other people part of the Joint Chiefs were also going to resign if if uh, President Trump had resorted to some sort of coup to use the military to preserve power. I did. I did hear about that. Um, very, you know, makes me appreciate him for being a good leader, you know. At the end of the day, you know, when you think about the military, it's not really to, you know, be politicized, although you can probably argue that some generals become a little too political or levying or levying their military careers for a future outside of the military, whether it's politics or consulting or what have you. So, you know, there's probably a good amount of generals that probably do do that, but, you know, I've also had a lot of respect for General Milley. Um, I got to meet him once at Braden's graduation because one of my guys graduated with the females, the first female class. Oh, uh, okay. So he was there, um, and then he essentially was, like, just walking around asking all rangers, like, what they thought about having women in ranger regiment. And, of course, I was with my guys, and every single one of them said, Hell no, not gonna happen. <laughs> Refuse it. We won't ever allow women in here. I was like, guys, this is <laughs> the chief of staff of the army. You can't like just say no. <laughs> well, I, I love that though because if you want like an honest answer from somebody, all you know, albeit uh, maybe even incorrect or um, challenging, you know, society at the time, you, you got to ask guys that are on the ground. Oh, yeah. I, I yeah. really dislike when generals will ask battalion commanders or field grades on staff what what their feelings are on something i saw it uh up at the division of brigade level and it's it's disheartening because you know five years prior those individuals were down on the ground on a line unit commanding uh and or supporting and they knew exactly what the flavor was of the month and then they act like once they've made field grade they just completely forget about the men uh in the women and they they give these political answers so they can stay in. I, I though, was a, a little bit disheartened when I heard the General Milley information, not because I disagreed 
with that potential decision. But that's the kind of information that should never get out. You should not have a a high-ranking individual's thoughts of essentially staging what seems like a soft coup uh, made public because that's just going to further that idea that the military is now starting to do its own thing. We live in this banana republic and that if the generals don't like something, they will just go against the president of the United States. I didn't think that President Trump was ever going to resort to that, but the fact that you know the highest-ranking uh, army leader in the military was considering either stepping aside or refusing the order I just don't know whether that's the, hey, there's a commander-in-chief for a reason, that's not you. We've got to abide by the, the orders that come down from above, and you, you can't really question them. Because that would be the same thing if a platoon leader told his, I don't know, division commander, ah, I'll think about it before I execute it, if the division commander said, hey, I, I need you to go do this breach. It's not really the same thing, though. Like, you know, it's important to defend the Constitution, I say America against all enemies, foreign domestic... Whether, you know, with that is like, you know. Yeah, homegrown terrorists. I I totally get what the argument was, and I would have supported that kind of action, but I would have preferred that action uh, and the discussions surrounding it not leaked to the press. It's just one of those, hey, United States. yeah. Yeah, like this is information that clearly probably was discussed, but I don't want there to be a rift between the military um, and the White House. Because now going forward, whenever we have really difficult decisions to make or we have to go and do hard things and the president says, get it done, now people are going to wonder, well, hey, General Milley at one point was considering refusing President Trump's orders. Will this next general do the same if they think it's foolhardy? You know, like going into Iraq kind of decision. Those are the decisions now that people will second guess when before we would not have, but for the media deciding to leak this information? Uh, I don't really think that's really going to be a thing. I think it was more so, you know, it was just a debatable, you know, constitutionally, you know, um, debatable application of military force for, you know, if the stage a coup against, you know, with President Trump or ex-President Trump. I don't think that, like, is on the same line as, like, an invasion of Iraq or something like that, where it is a, although a presidential decision, but, you know, probably it goes within the line of constitutional power to declare war and other, you know. Well, only Congress can declare war, but we have these quasi-wars where, you know, up to, uh, you know, 60 days kind of thing that we can constantly expand uh, yeah. and extend ourselves. But that it's a slippery slope is what I'm trying to highlight. You know, when is the... When does the no come from a general now going forward is essentially a question that everyone will probably have. I mean, I think generals still will say no a lot of the time, or, like, will, you know, they should voice their opinion. Like, I can't imagine any, like, general officer during, like, the war in Afghanistan and Iraq saying, no, we, this is a bad idea, or, like, at least voicing, like, you know, but still doing what they're told, you know, doing the accomplishing the orders, but then you know, fully, um, you know, discussing, like, the, whether or not this is, you know, the pros and cons of each decision that's made, you know. Right. But I think with General Milley in particular, given that he was part of that presidential photo shoot that went over to uh, the church across the street 
So he, he was aware as soon as he got over there that this was going to be a photo op, that they were going over there for no other purpose other than to stage some sort of a White House political protest. He could have easily turned around right then and there and walked away. And he, he said afterwards that if he had known that that was going to occur, he would never have participated or would have, you know, voiced his um, his displeasure. It's like, well, then just turn around and walk away right there. there there's nothing bigger. You've got literally nowhere else to go once you are the chief of staff. So that next job that he might be vying for in the military does not exist. He could have easily walked away. They could have force, forcefully retired him, and he would have been the highest-ranking, you know, serviceman in the country. That he had no other reason to stay there other than for for some sort of like self-preservation. I want to maintain this role. So that whole idea of I'm going to step down when it's like maybe politically even more of a dangerous question. I just that's one of those. If he had stepped away from the photo shoot, I would have been okay. This is consistent General Milley type thinking, but he didn't. I see what you're saying. I see. Yeah, I don't know. You know, it's hard to you know fully understand maybe his thought process or what else is going on behind the scenes, you know. But in my experiences with him, I've always, you know, respected him as an officer and as a leader. Um, I've heard also, like, a pretty funny story about his son, which I will not share on the podcast, but I'll tell you offline about his son because he went to Georgetown and one of my friends was in his um, was in his program at Georgetown RTC. Oh. Georgetown well, always has a, a bunch of people uh, that have, like, very famous uh, fathers, and their sons end up, you know, joining the military, too. I, I knew a dude who's, whose dad was uh, the director of, uh, of an agency, and um, so that's not the second time. That, that's, a, that's a weird coincidence to have that many people uh, related to very senior-ranking uh, individuals. But I would say with the general thing, I know we— in the military, like to hold them to a, a high regard. But looking at Afghanistan now, essentially being a complete failure because the Taliban's taking over, these generals that were in charge did the same thing over and over again. It's not like any single one of them, no matter how respected they were by the troops, did anything to change the course of, of the future for that country. We've, we, we did the exact same thing over and over and over and over again. The SFAB thing might have helped back in 2008 to 10 if we had given them a decade of training under that kind of a model. But we we didn't do anything different. And then every single general just came in and did a slightly different version of COIN, being impatient with the results, and then just changing the metrics. So yeah. I, generals are great, but at the same time, I don't think they did uh, jack squat in Afghanistan from 2004 on. Yeah, but I think that you can't really put it, I think, all on to the military side because, you know, it's a lot of it's pol- pol- politically driven as far as the goals and what, you know, politics want or what the, you know, government wants as far as our role and involvement, budgetary, you know, troop, like how much troops that you're going to deploy and things like that. So at the end of the, you know, they might have a plan but then the plan will get you know modified overturned or rejected by congress slash president and ultimately they're just told to do what the president you know given resources to do with sure and the state department could have done a much better job with the actual government what i'm saying is like these generals 
were the same ones when they were battalion and brigade commanders fighting and trying to levy their formations to go to Afghanistan, arguing that they would make a difference, that this next deployment, because they wanted to be the brigade that had that on their, uh, their, their banner. You know, they wanted to have that streamer on there saying OEF, OIF, you know, whatever GWAT deployment cycle that we were on, they wanted to be there. So that eventually now these generals were the brigade commanders back in the early 2000s. And now in the 2010 and the teens era, they started getting up to the division staff level and they were constantly just accruing these deployments. I think part of the reason why we stayed in Afghanistan for so long was because we had leaders that were overconfident in their own abilities because they were just levying their you know future potential and weighing their self-worth significantly higher than it should have been and putting their own personal interests a- ahead of the, the formation. Like There was no reason why we could not have stuck with a small unit presence, I think is like Rumsfeld wanted in Afghanistan originally from 01 to 03 with primarily soft personnel, and then we opened it up to this this giant conventional army cluster you know and turned it into a a vietnam round two but on a just a much smaller casualty scale for u.s personnel it's funny that you mentioned that because i uh was reading this book uh recently called uh the generals by thomas e ricks and basically he talks about the whole book is based on kind of uh following generalhood from world war ii uh where he says that like during that time in World War II, we had, you know, some of the best officers, general officers that, you know, the Army <coughs> and America's have produced. Um, but he says the reason why those officers were great were because, was because of the fact that they were selected very, um, they were thoroughly selected and they were, you know, officers were constantly fired. General officers were constantly, like, fired if they didn't perform or didn't execute the mission. So there's high turnover, and as a result, because of the high turnover, the, the cream kind of rose to the, cr- the top, and, like, the best leading officers, like, general officers would be in, like, the commanding positions, whereas the less, you know, I guess good ones would be in staff roles or, like, training commands or things like that. And then as, like, the Army has progressed from World War II to Korea to Vietnam to Gulf War and GWAT, um, it pretty much became more um, kind of like politicized, kind of, yeah, more bureaucratic. Where, you know, if a general or if a lieutenant colonel like got fired from a job because they weren't a battalion commander, you know, that would just signify they would fire. They'd be like never progress in the army. Whereas in the old time, they would just transfer into other less you know prestigious positions or non-command positions. But in today's army, it's like everybody, you know, if you get a bad like a single bad OER, you're not going to make colonel or some shit like that, you know. Right, and, and I think it's one of the have. things we talked about. I hate the OER system because individuals that were either waiting to pin major or wanted to be promoted to major from captain, they had to have a top block as their last block if they wanted to get promoted within the their primary zone. If they were BZ uh, candidates, they had to have you know like two top blocks. And so we have a bunch of individuals like in the infantry branch, which has always frustrated me, if. The Ranger tab is not the end-all, be-all in, in the Army, nor is it in the infantry. But that being said, it's a basic measurement of your ability to go from eyebolic to a platoon. Like, if you don't pass Ranger school after spending almost six months at Benning prepping only for that one course, like, that's a, that's a red flag. 
and it's not like a career-ending red flag, but that's an issue. But if by the time you're a captain in the infantry, having gone back to MCCC, having been a platoon leader, having now learned command-level strategy, tactics, mission planning, you can't go get your ranger tab, that's like... That's for me. That was just beyond comprehension. I didn't understand how captains could go through career courses, infantry officers, and not get their tab. Seeing as how individuals from all these other branches can get it done, but you couldn't get it done, and that's your job. Like you have the yips. Your only job in the infantry is to do what Ranger School essentially does, and that's to show you that you can take simple plans and execute them. Now, then, when you get to company command positions, I really disliked it because. If you have dudes coming from Ranger Regiment, if you have dudes coming from really premier assignments that have deployment experience, those dudes should be front-loaded into command slots. The individuals that are just mediocre, tabless infantry officers, they should be removed from command, just kind of like what you were talking about, like move to less prestigious jobs. Because you know what I never see? We, we, we keep arguing, oh, the Ranger tab isn't the end-all, be-all. How many light battalion commanders do you see out there that are non-ranger qualified like zero and then same with brigade commands how many infantry brigade commanders do you see without their ranger tab zero so it clearly is some sort of a metric that we hold our higher leaders towards but we don't do that for the lower echelons i mean like i think that's just where it was always frustrating for me so with these you know going back to the general conversation if we had enforced these standards and been less bureaucratic that the best person for the job is going to be given the position, I think we would probably have a better turnover at the general level where the expectation was just like in range regiment, you don't perform, you're out. Yeah. And it's also kind of the, uh, like the, the, the idea of like earning your top blocks. And then because of you have to like earn your top blocks to get to the next level, people like officers then become more subservient, less likely to challenge the status quo Whereas in like World War Two, these generals are doing like, would like whatever, like trying new things, and then they realize like that you know failure didn't mean your career was over. It just meant that you just weren't that was it wasn't time yet. And he used examples of like some generals who like were battalion commanders or colonel or like brigade commanders, didn't do like or regimental commanders at that time, and like had like a failure on, on like a um, on a con- like in a battle or something. They lost that command, went to go do something else, but then proved they learned from their mistakes and then was put back into command in the future date. But nowadays, it's like once you, you know, have failed at one spot and you can't regress, then it progress again in, the, in today's army, you know? Yeah. I, for instance, JRTC, everyone seems to be completely fine with going to JRTC and getting their ass kicked. Every unit I've been in has made excuses. Oh, we lost a third of our force. Oh, we just lost two battalions at the breach of this random spot in JRTC where we knew they were massing forces. Like, the brigade I was in got absolutely clobbered. I didn't understand that. If you were a battalion commander and you got clobbered, goodbye. I don't know how getting your ass kicked says, you know what, this person's ready for battalion command in Afghanistan or in an austere wartime environment. And so if the, if the scenario is difficult, well, clearly it's going to be difficult for everybody, but you should be able to overcome those challenges with taking those necessary risks and then being able to vocalize when a plan sucks. And being there and watching, for instance, we were in like a near-peer threat, so the whole uh, collateral damage estimate was not as enforced when you could take out you know, a large enemy force. That was like you know, the commander's discretion. 
we had the entire JRTC Op 4 command doing a rock drill. And we didn't execute any kind of strike. We were watching them on Kill Cam TV and did nothing. If we had taken them out three days, they're gone out of the box. And instead, we were like, you know, they're, they're near a building. We don't know if that building is a school. We're not going to drop it. It's like, this is JRTC 1 in a near-peer threat. If we were like this in real life, are you telling me you wouldn't do the same thing? Oh, and instead, these individuals went out, led their Op 4 commands, and absolutely annihilated half of our formation. And, oh, yeah, we can reconstitute in 24 hours. That's not the point. Like, you will lose at JRTC. I get that. Like, there are elements that you will, like, struggle with and then improve on. But the fact that, like, half of your formation or two full battalions are completely decimated is a huge concern. And I just don't know why we don't, like, take training events like that more seriously. Because if a platoon leader messes up, platoon sticks, platoon live fire, battalion commanders are really easy to make the decision Maybe we shouldn't send them as a platoon leader forward, but we don't do that with our senior commanders because we don't hold them accountable. Yeah, it's because that one, because you can't regress and then progress again. Like once you, because that's one thing I like about the army. It's like everything has to be done on the timeline, and if you deviate from the timeline, then your career is over. Right? That's kind of like the. That's kind of like everyone is told that. So like, that's why I think you know, like what you know, Rick's argues in his book is that. The army has become too politicized or too bureaucratic, bureaucratic, too bureaucratic, and that you know we're all senior officers are trying to do is appease the next level in order to get that top lock, in order to move to the next level. So we've created this culture of groupthink, of you know checking the box, of continuing the status quo in order to get to the next level or the next position. And that's what he argues that, like um, in his this primary that's primary that's like the primary um, thesis of his book that we've somehow deviated from this culture of like excellence and like selection essentially to become a, like a to command and replace that with like bureaucratic uh, just natural progression that everybody should you know command. Yeah, everyone should have an opportunity, which is not that's the right answer for false. the military. the The military should be the best or in charge because. There's no backup plan. Like, that is, that is your, your first choice. That's the, the only choice you're going to have. And if you're going to commit someone's uh, son or daughter to go fight and know that the leader of that formation was given that because they just had to have company command before they could be, uh, you know, promoted or before they were told, hey, the Army's just not working for you any longer, like, you had to be given that opportunity— that's crap. This isn't like, you know, middle school or high school where we have to make sure everyone gets the same experience to the to the extent that this is a public education. This is the United States military. It is a profession. If you don't have it, you don't have it. But, you know, again, that that's the way that the Army is running nowadays, and I think it's only just been made worse by the fact that we have senior leaders that grew up in this and fostered this kind of a culture. Yeah, it's like, but I think it's also part of like the uh, it's like reflection of modern day society where, you know, it's participation trophies. Everybody gets a trophy for participating, and that, you know, you don't necessarily have to earn the trophy as long as you are there, show up every day, you get the trophy. You know. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Uh, speaking of everyone showing up and getting it, I heard a rumor that in September, the army is going to make vaccinations mandatory for COVID-19 which 
I was looking up to see because there's, there's a, apparently a ton of vaccine hesitancy. I think we both saw that article uh, from I think it was Knox, where yeah. a ton of soldiers yeah. are getting GoMars, GoMars for for not getting vaccinated. But for just some of the shots that we had to get while we were there, influenza, which I think is is obviously different than COVID, but it's a flu, measles, uh, meningitis or meningococcal, mm-hmm. mumps, polio, rubella. Tetanus, uh, influenza again, yellow fever, uh, the hepatitis, cholera, hepatitis, plague, rabies, smallpox, anthrax. I think it's really funny that a lot of service members are hesitant to get this vaccine, talking about the efficacy when they have no idea how any other vaccine has ever been produced. They just use anecdotal evidence. They have no idea what's in any of those vaccines that they get when they initially join up. I mean, I, I'm thinking back to I. We're not like that podcast that only talks about Ranger School because that was our only military experience. Uh, but getting like the peanut butter shot, like our whole careers, oh I'm saying, God. has not been measured off of Ranger School. Like we haven't built a brand around that. Yeah, um, but that that peanut butter shot that we got at Ranger School, that felt like sand going into my ass. I have no idea what was in that, but. The, the same people that should be hesitant to get the COVID shot should probably be the same people that at Ranger School would go, no, don't put that in my body. Because I had, you could have literally been filling that syringe with syrup for all I know. <laughs> but you're going to tell me that now, now you're an educated individual that knows the the uh, FDA requirements for vaccinations, how CBER is involved, what uh, class one, two, three type uh, research looks like, what those groups have to have, the types of statistics that go into licensing. You're going to tell me you are now an expert on all of that information and you've made the decision that this is the one vaccine out there that you just can't trust. Of all the vaccines that you've ever taken, this is the one that you know for sure has the most issues because of the anecdotal science that you get off of Instagram. Yeah, it's just like that. There's like that meme of like the, uh, you know, all the memes about it's like the guy that refuses to get the vaccine is also the guy that eats Pizza Hut and defect, you know. Yes. Every day of the week, <laughs> or Pizza Hut and Burger King four days a week or five days a week, you know. It's yeah. Like fucking, it's like the same thing. It's like that drinks monsters, like three cans of monsters a day, dips a full can a day, drinks a pack of cigarettes a day. Like, you're doing way worse things to your body than just taking a vaccine that is pretty efficacious and. Relatively low side effect profile Yeah, the other thing too that uh, I thought was really funny And this made me think of the military Is uh, somebody on Barstool Apparently did a thing about you know Vaccines in the NFL Because the NFL is yeah. either now requiring it Or they're going to totally just dump on teams If, if games have to be uh, Postponed But you got players that are in the NFL That will be like I've got six concussions, I've broken limbs, I've torn ligaments, I'm going to put my body on the line to play this game. Like, I don't care if I can't walk when I'm 40, if I don't remember my kids after my 45th birthday, I'm tough, I'm playing football. But then they're like, oh no, I can't do that now because I have to get a vaccine. What kind of alternative reality do we live in where you go, choice A you know, uh, the, the, the brain trauma is something I can accept. Oh, but science, uh, can't do that. Like cannot accept, oh, we've got, you know, hundreds of millions of vaccinations out there and we've got a couple hundred or even a thousand statistically 
uh, issues with either individuals catching COVID uh, and getting sick and or dying. Um, but that's going to be enough. That is your statistical threshold for refusing the vaccine. Well, it's like if, if that's your statistical threshold, then if one player in the last 40 years has some sort of a brain injury playing in the NFL, you should just never play again. Like, that's what I don't understand is why it's it's become super politicized, but it's also that the champions of the the scientific proof that people rely on are like, you know, the the smartest dummies in the classroom. Like, we're not relying on people that have any sort of medical degrees or experience. They're they're arguing public policy reasons why vaccination should be a choice, not the science of why they're you know, the efficacy is, uh, is pro or con. Yeah. I think it's, it's like multifactorial. I think the definitely politicizing the politicization, like, of course, like when Donald Trump came out, you know, Trump was vehemently anti COVID and then it just became linked with, you know, Trump that if you're anti science or anti vaccination or anti COVID, then you're a Republican. And I think that like, if you believe, like, in the, you know, doing the social distancing, masking and stuff, then you're just a, you know, hardcore liberal or Democrat. So it's like people get lumped in these preconceived notions of what you should be based on your political beliefs. And therefore, you are, like, um, biased to whatever, you know, you aligns with your political belief. And that's, like, a part of it. I think another part of it is also just, like, the... Um, kind of the anti-science and like social media rhetoric that now exists kind of everywhere now where yeah. everybody now is like a, an expert on you know about science and all this other stuff without ever actually getting education on it you know it's like that like uh like the high school guy that you know believes all these conspiracy theories because they've done research into it you know right which is just I, involves like cursory searches on google like my feeling is the covid Vaccine should have always been a a choice. Like it should not be forced on a population, because we never make the flu vaccination every single year a requirement. This is an awful flu. It has clearly killed more individuals than flus in the past. But if we look at the population of individuals who are at most at risk of this flu and going forward of any severe flu. It's the individuals that, you know, are elderly or have some sort of uh, uh, immune deficiency disorder or they have underlying health conditions. And I mean, like, real underlying health conditions, not, you know, necessarily like obesity related. So that never changes every single year. Those same populations are at risk every year. But it's now those populations that we're all of a sudden latching onto as the reason why vaccination has to be mandatory. Well, if that is the argument, then every single year we should make that argument for the flu shot because those populations don't get any better with the passage of time. We have more individuals entering into that retirement age and that elderly status with the baby, baby boomer generation now kind of you know reaching critical mass. Uh, we have individuals that are getting more unhealthy every single year and so have these really bad underlying health conditions. That gets worse every single year. So every single year from here on out, what I totally expect should be the argument is that we need to get the flu shot for everyone, make it mandatory across the board. But that's not going to happen. It's like COVID-19 has become so politicized, but 
it's not looking at what it's actually targeting in our population, which really frustrates me. I'm fine with businesses requiring, you know, the vaccination with schools, uh, private institutions requiring it. But when we start making it a public requirement, when we don't for any other type of shot, like we're running into, again, the dangerous science of we have one population that thinks that the vaccine's not safe. We have another population, too, that's equally as dangerous that thinks that COVID is way more deadly um, than it really is. Like they're comparing this to, you know, the bubonic plague, which it's just not. And so when we have these two alternate uh, platforms arguing back and forth, that common sense in the middle ground, it does not exist. Yeah, uh I was going to say, I do, you know, it's a, there's precedent for, like, you know, requiring vaccinations to go to schools, for example, like, in order to go to public schools, in most states, you have to have XYZ, like, uh, vaccinations for the most part. Um, you know, some some states are more lax, like California, where they can, like, give you the choice of vaccinations to go to school and stuff. Oregon. But, yeah. But then the day, you know... To get act, you, you don't. I don't think you should mandate it for everybody, but you should also like. I think it's well within reason to tie certain resources and services to these, uh, the vaccinations. Like you can't go on public transportation if you're not vaccinated. You can't fly if you're not vaccinated. Things like that. Yeah, um, I'm fine with that because again, that that's that public entity, right. private entity type yeah. overlap. And if it's going to be controlled by the government for the large extent, or controlled by a uh, municipality or state level uh, entity, if they make that decision, that's literally the the representatives of the voters making the decision, or private parties. But for the national government to step over the you know individual rights of the states, um, like that that's that's going to be challenging going forward because again it's that slippery slope of where do we stop with this kind of control? Um, no, I, are we going to go? Are we going to go back to, to the total mask mandate, you know, come the fall when people are just going to naturally, we're going to hit another flu cycle. Aside from COVID-19, we will have another flu for the seasonal flu in the next six months. So how is that going to compound the effects of what we're still going through now with the Delta or the Lima variant? No, I 100% agree. It's like, you can't, you know, I'm very libertarian in a lot of regards. And, um, you know, I think everyone should have the ability to make their own, you know, decision as far as vaccinations and it should be you know have the ability to choose for themselves and make their own risk benefit analysis for that but it's just yeah, exactly uh, you can't make everybody you know toe the line for everything you can't make everybody toe the line for like getting driver's licenses or like you know having car insurance even though it's legislated you can't like make everyone do it you know right i mean i think from from kind of that standpoint or that argument if we're going to make everyone have to get a vaccine for this, for something that contributes uh, to an underlying condition that increases the mortality rate, well, then I expect the government to come in and start controlling what's in the pantries of the average American to start coming in and mandating that Americans start taking fitness seriously uh, and that this idea of health at every weight is an appropriate way to view um, health and society, like if we're gonna, if we're if we're not gonna stop at making vaccines mandatory across the country, then we shouldn't stop when it comes to other actual health conditions um, that every single year are controllable uh, by us. Yeah, you know, definitely a you know progression of that same logic. Um, 
Yeah, I don't know. I definitely don't agree in like mandating vaccinations for everybody. You know, you have, I think, the freedom to make your own decisions, but you also have the you should also have the um, capability of, um, you know, dealing the consequences of such decisions. Yeah, if you don't get the COVID vaccine and you die of COVID, but okay, All right? I I don't feel sympathetic to that. Like, I, I got the vaccine because I felt like if this is a flu, I have asthma. I just don't want to get sick uh, because not that I'm afraid of I'm going to pass away from this, but from the sense of, like, I'm not going to be able to continue being fit and active. I have a 97-year-old grandmother I still want to see who's very healthy. Like, I made that decision to get it, and I'm required to have it to go to school. So between all of those factors, I made the decision to get the vaccine. Now, if I didn't get the vaccine and I caught it and I died in the hospital, I mean, that that just seems like that was the risk I was willing to take and it didn't pay off. No, so, I agree. I agree. Um, yeah. On a lighter note, I've been watching this show called Trying on Apple TV. I don't know if you've you've seen it. Okay, it's a British comedy oh, about... Stop. What? It's about adoption. Oh, I, you know, because we've talked about in, in vitro fertilization and how expensive it is, and we've had friends in the military that have had problems conceiving, um, you know, male fertil- fertility rates, you know, going down across the country. Uh, do you know that the price to adopt is between like twenty five and fifty thousand dollars? Oh yeah, I knew that. Yeah, that is unreal. To again, we have individuals in this country that want to raise children, that want to be parents. That's the cost of, like, a brand-new car. And I'm not comparing a child to a car (laughs) purchase. I'm saying financially, if you have an individual that's setting aside money so that they can raise a child because they think a child living in, um, you know, this this big kind of Batman-style orphanage, you know, is not getting a fair shake at life, and they want to take them in and raise them as their child and give them a loving, caring environment, you're going to put a twenty-five dollars to $50,000 cost on that? that? That's unreal. I mean, it's, in vitro is a similar thing with the military not covering it. But, you know, why doesn't the military cover adoption costs kind of thing? You know, like, again, I, I just feel badly because it's, I feel like I'm constantly reminded in society that people that want children can't get kids and we have all of these obstacles in their way and it seems like all of them are financial like 25 to 50 thousand dollars seems like a lot of money to do something that is incredible that is going to change someone's life that is going to make them feel loved that is going to turn things around that might bring a family together but you're going to say that that's worth fifty thousand dollars i think that is awful yeah, I mean, I don't think, you know, it's that you pay X to get Y. I think it's paying X in order to prove the the regulatory agency to get Y, you know. Because, uh, you know, the, the adoption process is, you know, full of bureaucracy and other agencies that, you know, have to be paid somehow for doing all the work of, like, finding, you know, or, or finding kids and finding, you know, um, acceptable families that they come and inspect the household they need to do like background checks they do like all this like legal i'm sure you're like well aware of all the legal and kind of the you know ethical things that you know to to really you know determine if you're a worthy uh like a worthy like 
it's fast, not foster, but like worthy, like you know, Ado- ad- like an an, an, an uh, adoptive parents. Yeah, like obviously not everyone should be, uh, you know, parents, right? So like the fact that just because you want to have kids, like you might not, you know, be in the, you might do this kid even worse by adopting this kid, you know. Absolutely, but I think as part of those background checks, looking into their finances, okay, these people have investments set aside. Um, they are, you know, smart money managers. They have a house that is conducive to have one, two, three, X amount of children. They've demonstrated through these background checks, which are extensive and can take up to 18 months plus, that they have the financial resources to add an extra mouth to feed to send this child to daycare to you know provide a comfortable life play sports but then they say oh we're just going to take 25 or 50 thousand dollars to cover that when a lot of like foster programs are sponsored by the state when the states have a lot of uh finances that go towards i think helping some of these agencies i feel like some of them are now overly profiting um from such like an altruistic endeavor because somewhere I read that over half of that cost goes straight to the agency's pocket. Oh yeah, no, that's that's more probably where it comes down to. But um, you know, it's hard. I'm sure that somebody's done like some expose about like because uh, it's all like a black you know behind the black box as far as adoptions go. Sure. Like we always we always think that it's like pre like shouldn't be that difficult to find like a you know, a kid and then match them up with, like, a willing-to-adopt family or parents. But, you know, I imagine that there's some, like, black box in terms of, like, all these regulatory check marks that you have to accomplish and all these bureaucratic things to do and legal paperwork to fill out. And the agency is, like, the only people that know how to do all that stuff, you know. Right. It's like when you're, you're paying someone, if you're starting a company, you're paying a law firm to go through to help file for you. Um, and, and to get the contract language and your bylaws written effectively. But I just think it's sad because I, no, want, I, to, I want to adopt one day. I think if, you, you know, it, I'll be in a position where, you know, I can have a, a healthy family. I want to do my part again with society and, and, and give back to the you know, fullest extent possible and, you know, find a kid out there that needs help and provide them that that healthy and stable uh, um, way forward. I just think it's really sad, though, that you've got a lot of families out there that are like that that can't do that because you've got this unrealistic financial barrier in front of them that, but for it, have all the resources necessary. Yeah, a little predatory, you know, as far as uh, these agencies go, kind of predatory, kind of um, very, um, you know, not in the best interest of everybody involved and in just trying to get a cut of the pie. Um, but no, I, I, I agree with you on that. Like, I have a, my one, I don't know if you met him, but one of my buddies at 375, his parents were, have like eight adopted kids or something like that. And they're all like kids with disabilities, like, um, like mental and intellectual disabilities and things like that. And that's like even crazier that they not only have, you know, paid the, um, adoption fees, but then adopted a disabled kid that require additional Extensive resources. Care. Yeah, yeah. I I was looking up uh, in New Jersey at the various agencies that are here. When you know none of them come with 
you know, hey, we're good for X amount of dollars would get you your kid. You know, but the state does have its own fostering program. And for the most part, it's significantly less expensive when you go through like a, a state's program. But, you know, just like you were talking about, a lot of the children that are in the state program, a lot of them are between the ages of like 13 and 17. A lot of them have severe behavioral uh, or um, intellectual disabilities, you know, and it, it's just it, it's terrible that I, I wish there was a larger Again, we talk about, like, government control, right? Before, don't come into my house, don't force me to take these vaccines, my choice, my body. But I wish that the government controlled this a little bit more to make sure that there was a national resource. And maybe there is. I I only looked at it, you know, briefly this weekend and last weekend. But there was a national program that really directed the kids around the country to great homes that maybe wasn't so localized to just one region, um, you know, in that we put some of our tax dollars to something like that, then, you know, providing tens of millions to do- of dollars to countries that absolutely hate us as some form of uh, nation building. You know, that that's well, we can get into like where our taxes go at, at nauseum here. But I just it's something that I've started getting into only having watched this show, which is just completely uh, changed the way that I, I look at what I want to do with part of my adult life going forward. Interesting. You know, whenever you become president, Sean, you can put that in policy oh yeah that that'll be great you know what's going to be great is these the, you know these podcasts are going to live on forever through the uh the digital sphere and i'm just waiting for you know one of them to come back on a presidential rally like hey did you say that you know soldiers that weren't infantry uh weren't cool yeah i did i you know i'm, I'm biased uh i don't think uh you're cool if you went into the navy and didn't go seal i'm sorry was that the question like yeah, it's going to be hard running for, for president. I was, uh, speaking of running for president, I was listening, to, I think probably like on Joe Rogan or something, talking about, he had like on some, politi- some political guests, and they were talking about, you know, how now, it, we've talked about this before, about how, like, it's so, that identity politics are so so great that, you know, you if you're not far left, you're not Democrat, if you're not far right, you're not Republican. Right. Whereas the majority of people are probably somewhere in the middle, like probably a little more, like, uh, in the middle and have some conservative views, some liberal views, but generally speaking, a lot of people nowadays are like into or or believe in like same sex marriage, um, like that, uh, like pro you know pro choice things like that, like pragmatic approaches to a lot of things. Yeah. Whereas um, you know in current politics, it's like either one way or the other way. There's one in between. So they're saying that like, the next generation of uh, politicians are need to be like young have both liberal and conservative views, you know, understand kind of the implications that they're able to think for themselves and have a pragmatic approach to things. Um, you know, example, Sean being a perfect example of someone that has somewhat conservative views on some, on some topics and then very liberal and non-traditional views on other topics, but overall very pragmatic and, you know, very logically thought out approach to, to politics or into policies, so... Yeah, and yeah. I would generally say that I'm the smartest person I know, that I'm amazing. <laughs> is this me launching? Are we launching my campaign right now? But I'm just waiting for the – like, I, I'm just waiting for the next five, ten years when you start your political career, and then I'll just say that, you know, it started all started here. Yeah, well, that'll be – I'll be the, the Wolf Pharaoh from the campaign. Schools is our future. <laughs> you know, window uh, tent technicians are America's backbone. But I would say with the younger – Argument: I would absolutely love to see a younger population. We have the oldest Congress in history, 
but you look at the young people that are in Congress right now and you shake your head. It's the Madison, is it Crawford or Crawthorn? Hawthorne, Crawthorne, yeah. Uh, the one yeah, that yeah. like paralyzed some shit, yeah. Yeah, didn't get into the Naval Academy, no matter how much he wants to say he did. Um, it's that dude who doesn't even know the people that he's quoting, hasn't read the bills that he's arguing against, and doesn't understand the criminal justice system enough when he levies comments against, you know, Fauci's testimony in Congress. Like, we have that one side, and then we have people on the other side, like AOC, economics degree from BU doesn't understand economics. You would hope, as we were just mentioning, that those two, while polar opposites, would be able to come and meet in the middle, but it's like now our younger generation feels like it's just completely bifurcated. There's nothing bringing them ever closer. We're in the redwood forest. There's a giant gap in this tree that people can drive through. The tree will never grow back together. I mean, I look at it from the sense, and, you know, at, at when you were at med school, we talked about it. The peers that I have at my law program, I think, are incredibly intelligent. But some of the arguments that I hear that they make for different kind of um, political ideologies, for social programs that we should have or lack thereof, are, like, astounding to hear because they feel... I'm going to say they feel for me because that's what I learned in school. Everything is a feel now. They feel, to me, completely stupid. Like, there's no getting around how uneducated they sound when they are now at one of the best graduate degree programs that you can possibly achieve at one of the best programs in the country that you can get into. But you're going to make arguments that a poli-sci major freshman year at some random D3 school that nobody's ever heard of is going to be able to talk around. Like, that's what's scary to me is that we have individuals, young people in this country that are incredibly intelligent, that are just also incredibly, incredibly stupid. Yeah, but it's also, I think a lot of that just comes from just straight up ignorance. And, you know, until you actually have life experience or have lived a little bit, have, you know, done things, seen things, experienced things, you have no basis for talking about, you know, like, um, you know, social services, you know, things like that. It's like, unless you've, like, gone to, you know, a third world country like Afghanistan and seen truly poor people that are oppressed, like, true oppression, things like that, you know, then you don't really understand what it is. And um, I said the same thing for, like, in med school. It's the same thing with med school. Like, a lot of the people that came straight out of med school or came out of college and med school have, you know, these super idealistic views of, like, social programs and, like, things like that. And ultimately, you know, it's, it's just... I think just form of ignorance and lack of life experience and, you know, just viewing life in a very naive, naive and, you know, simplistic view where it's either, you know, white or black and no shades of gray, whereas everything is shades of gray and there's no such thing as, you know, white and black. There's no such thing right and wrong. It's just shades of, shades of both. Yeah, I think America would benefit from... It's not the Red Cross. What is the... Um not the foreign legion either what's that program that you can do where you travel to essentially what are third world countries and you provide a peace corps yeah Yeah. i would love to see more people volunteering for the peace corps for maybe like habitat for humanity is that is that is that the, the environmental one 
No, that's when you build homes for like homeless people. Okay, yeah, well, even that, like the Habitat for Humanities, the Peace Corps. Teach for uh, if 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 we had more individuals that were required, and, and what we said going back to, to education, if we want education to be free for the majority of Americans, then let's tie one of those programs on the back end of it and require that people teach in areas of the country that are failing on uh, the national education averages. You know, let's have people, if they want to go uh, and qualify for these loans, are going to go into the Peace Corps for a year or two so they understand that the education that they're getting, even beyond their high school level, is putting them ahead of 98% of the rest of the world. And they are incredibly privileged beyond what they think is holding them back in American society. I think it's one of those, until you see how people uh, in truly impoverished areas of the world live, some of your language and your rhetoric needs to be dialed down significantly because we speak on such extremes now, and that's the expectation because the news does that, YouTube does it. I think we I talked once about a kid that I went to college with that has uh, an, a, a YouTube news channel. Every single one of his news clips is like Saki owning, uh, you know, Peter Ducey of Fox News, uh, Biden clapping back, like. This really, oh my God, I can't wait to watch this clip. What's it going to be? And then it's nothing. It's a, I'm sorry, I, I respectfully it's disagree. Great. And it's yeah, like, it's oh my good. God, like owned. Like that's everything now. So from the Chirons on news, uh, whether it's, you know, NBC, CBS, uh, 60 Minutes is CBS, uh, Fox, CNN, all of them are just these extremes. And now it's bled into how we talk in just basic school. Like everything is the most, is the worst. You can't get anything, you know, beyond it. The biggest threat to the military right now is COVID-19. Like, get real, guys. Like, stop speaking like that. We can, we're smart enough to understand what a risk is. You don't need to tell us every single time. Because, again, goes back to what the, the, the Democratic Party did with COVID. If it doesn't measure up to the worst of the worst, the next time you say something's bad, it's Peter and the Wolf. I'm not going to buy it. Yeah, we definitely talked about this before. Uh, I, I don't. I know we talked about this before about like doing a, like a Peace Corps, or, like mandatory, like federal service in some regards. Ironically enough, I did reread Starship Troopers uh, like last week. Not like planned for this, but no, one of my favorite books. I love the Starship Troopers book. Yeah, Heinlein, right? I love Robert Heinlein. He's one of my favorite authors. I like I like a lot of his writings. But, you know, like, people think that, like, what, if you watch a movie, Starship Troopers, it's kind of like a satire of that. But the book itself is very well done, very well written, but, you know, interspersed with, like, military and leadership challenges are these little nuggets and pearls of, you know, of society and politics and how, you know, we should create a society um, that is well-functioning. And with that is, you know, one of the best quotes that I love is, like, uh, something along the lines of, you know, the best things in life are not given. They are earned with the blood, the sweat, and tears, and even the most precious thing of all is life itself. And it's like, you know, you don't know how good you have it without, if you never had to work for it, you know? Yeah. And, and that's the thing that in, in this, you know, futuristic society is that in order to have a right to vote, that in order to be a citizen, you have to serve in some regards. And everybody can serve in the military or the federal services. You don't have to be, you know, an infantryman. You can, even if you're disabled, uh, intellectually disabled, you can still get a job and still enlist in service and do whatever your abilities will 
you know, provide for you. Like, and, you know, I think everyone in that, in our mind for, like, federal, of, like, mandatory, like, federal service is, like, everyone's going to come in the infantry and go, like, go fight wars. But, you know, it's not everyone would have to do that, you know, whether it's, like, you know, forest service or, like, you know, picking out or cleaning national parks, whether it's, like, engineer, engineer corps, um, peace corps, all these other different avenues of service, you know, I think our country would be a lot, like we said, a lot better off if you linked something for the federal service. Like, if you give something back to society, then you get something back in return, whether that is, like, like, like education or maybe, like, a grant to, like, you know, buy land somewhere or what, what have you, you know? But I, I would love to see that in, in the future where, you know, people where if you do something that betters everybody else that is very selfless, where you can put something, sacrifice some of your own time and effort and you get something back in return, you know, that's the perfect. And that makes it so much more worthwhile for you, too. Yeah. Uh, one of the things with that idea of everyone, you know, working for something, working towards something, everyone also thinks that the work that they do is the toughest and the hardest thing. And, you know, it's it's one of those when you sign up to do something, you should know inherently what those risks are and in, in what you're signing up for. So if you're signing up to go and become a doctor and you're told, hey, you didn't, what are some of the tests that you took uh, well, at medical school? Oh, the Callus test. Callus yeah, tests. but like, so you don't perform well enough on that. You might have thought you tried hard enough, but you didn't. Like, guess what? You're gone. Just like command, you're gone. Um, I, I've got peers that graduated law school last year that are freaking about uh, uh, the bar. I get the bar is the test that you need to pass in order to, you know, be a, a licensed practicing attorney somewhere. But if you're going to be traumatized by studying for three years at law school and then traumatized for the eight weeks that you're studying with like a Barbary prep, getting ready for a test that tests to last three years, maybe you shouldn't go into law because you're going to be dealing with much bigger and worse issues on a tougher time schedule affecting a client's real life than you being like intellectually stumped by preparing for a test that you should have been relatively prepared for after three years of quality education. Um, yeah. People just need to understand that. But back to Starship Troopers real quick, I wish the movie had gone into their earrings and how like individuals on you know, if you were a part of one mission, you'd get, like, an earring with a skull oh, on it. That's only, like, one... That's only with one unit, one company. Yeah, yeah, the cool one. Rico's Roughnecks. No, I no, just no, don't... that was not Rico's Roughnecks. In the book, it it's the, not. Well, it's not... Yeah, it's not in the movie, though. That That's... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, for those of you out there that are arguing, we should have beards, I want to be soft, one, go to SF Selection and do it. Um, but, two, why aren't we arguing for earrings with, you know, cool... Oh, you did an air assault in Afghanistan. Guess what? That's a, you know, you it's were part of uniform. this big operation. Yeah, instead of wearing uniform. a stupid set of like airborne wings, uh, let's wear a, you know a, an earring with a dangling wing. You know, like let's bring back some bling to the army. Yes, yeah, nose but, uh, rings. You know, like I, I do, I do think that like you know, just to tie back everything, it's just like uh, I do remember like in um, like in the book he talks about like. You, if you don't earn it, it doesn't. It doesn't feel like the. Uh, it doesn't feel as fulfilling or the same. So like, I remember in Ranger School, like, 
you know, just, like, saying, like, oh, I just wish they would just give me the Ranger tab. But then thinking about it, like, after the fact is, like, if they had just given it to you, given it to me, it would not have the same meaning that it does after, you know, you earn the tab rather than someone gives it to you. No, so absolutely. Anybody can, can walk to, like, you know, into your commissary or your clothing sales, buy a Ranger tab, but, you know, and throw it on your uniform. Anybody can do that, but you haven't earned, you know, the right to wear it. It doesn't mean anything to you. Like, once yeah. you've, like, gone through Ranger school, once you've done all the... Uh, suffered for the 61 days or however many days it is like it means so much more to have that tab and once you've earned it same thing with like anything like the olympics right now like i was just watching the olympics last night um and it was just like i can only imagine how what that feeling must feel like to be to after the years and like you know countless hours of like training and suffering and then to stand on top of that podium and get the medal like i can only imagine that feeling like after you've earned it, truly. Well, truly yeah, there was a nineteen-year-old that got second in the four hundred IM. Oh yeah, I saw that one. That's and actually no one I saw this. Yeah, she's like going to be a freshman at UVA next year. Yeah. How, I don't know how. I mean, can you imagine sitting next to somebody being some like you know like Decky. frat boy eighteen-year-old? Oh, I'm in college. Woo! Yeah, it's and like Kayla Decky in college. Yeah. Oh yeah, and she's like, I have, uh, I've won a couple Olympic medals. You're like. I've not done anything with my life. I'm such yeah. a failure. Like, it's just like, you know, that's like the best feeling too. It's just after you have put in the time, the effort and seen the fruits of your labor paying off. Like what, like well, how, what better feeling is that? You know? Yeah, there is none. And then, uh, I would also say like comparing this back to just going into, uh, the shop at and buying a tab. It's like the individuals that you see on the Instagram. I, I think, uh, was it disaster? Just did another great expose, a 15 minute one about some dude that has tattoos. Check, uh, rolls sleeves up in uniform pick check, uh, spends too much money on a rifle to make it look like it's Gucci'd out check. And then knows one thing about soft and cashes in on it and makes, you know, this fake Insta life about having been a soft influencer like that. I, I absolutely, it's the, I feel like it's the same thing. You can get away this this fake imposter syndrome, and then when someone actually checks, did you work? Did you earn it? You know, your world comes crashing down. The tactical doc dude. You know, the same people that are arguing that a tampon is as good as, as packing a wound as, uh, you know, as gauze and, you know, those kind of arguments that for those of you that, that follow the mill pages on, on Instagram. Yeah, but I guess the, the whole moral of the story is that, you know, you have to earn it. Hashtag earn it every day. Hashtag blessed. Um, but speaking, uh, I, I meant to say something about when we, back like half an hour ago, we were talking about the officers and like general officers. Oh, yeah. Uh, officers being overweight? New, no, 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 no. The new, uh-huh. the new RCO, uh, Colonel um, Kersey, um was one of the best field grades I ever worked with uh, in 375. So I'm really glad that he took over as uh, the RCO. Good guy. I remember uh, we did. I did like a training exercise in Korea, and I was like, uh, he was like OCing everything because it was a platoon live fire, uh, so somebody had to be there to watch it. And I remember because I like had to organize. Pretty much, I like was organizing it and like doing everything on the backside for it. And I remember like I like was losing my shit because things like uh, like the artillery is all fucked up and like very like it was like a big army artillery unit supporting us. And they were all jacked. Uh, they were all messed up. Like I was like losing my shit, 
and then he, he pulled off pulled me off to the side, and I was just like, Bobby, don't ever lose your cool like that in front of a soldier. And I was like, God damn it, he's right. <laughs> yeah. It's like, don't ever do that. I, I, I had that, uh, my, my old platoon sergeant, who's now a first sergeant down at Campbell, um, did the same thing with me. Uh, you know, it's always that, you know, obviously he was older than you. My platoon sergeant was older than me. But it's one of those embarrassing, oh, man, I got to. I gotta fix this. I can't like yeah. blow up like that. Yeah, it's like it'd be better. But the way that he did it, it wasn't like he was like fucking. It wasn't like you know your classic chihuahua where he like yells at you. He's just like has that very calm demeanor, and he's just like, "Don't ever do that again. You can't ever lose your cool like that. You're like, much more is expected of you. You have to be better." And I was like, "God, this hurts oh, so much more. It hurts so much more." The worst is when you get fucked down in a very civil manner. Um, like one of the first uh, con ops that I put together uh, as a battle captain, we had a couple elements out on missions, and at the same time, like I'm compiling all the data. Like you've been in there, and you're putting all their their reports together for them, so you send it to them when they get back. And I had like one of the units uh, in the the header um, that had been out, but had not put the actual name of the unit that had gone out. Like that was literally like the one typo. And I got a call straight from the company commander, and he says, Sean, we hired you for a reason here. If this is the kind of attention to detail that you're going to show, um, I assure you your experiences won't be long, um, and more is expected of you, and uh, this is uh, far um, you know, underperforming of, of what your value should be bringing into this organization. And I just remember hanging up, and then every single con op that I ever did I was looking at like five, six times over. I was getting like time off and then taking look back at it. I would send it to another officer to be like, hey, make sure that nothing like I have the right unit name. Right. I mean, it's terrifying. But like if you get yelled at, you might be numb to the criticism and go, oh, this person's just speaking out of emotion and, you know, isn't telling me what I messed up on instead of just showing me that they're upset I messed up. Yeah. And that's like the the, the one that sticks to you the most and that, you know, you get with. It. Yeah, but I am very glad that he uh, is now the RCO. Very deserving. Uh, probably one of the best officers I've ever worked with. Well, and, and uh, Colonel Tegmeyer, well now General Tegmeyer, uh, just got a star. I think within the last two to three weeks. So yeah. I know, like RCO is pretty much like one step. The next step is general officer and moving up in the ranks. So yeah, then like a division command at the eighty second. Yeah, and then somewhere in JSOC. I think that's like. That's that crew. Yeah. But, uh, you know, also West Pointer. Okay. Well, let's not gloat. (laughs) Let's not gloat, Bobby. (laughs) I never saw them wearing their rings, so I cannot confirm nor deny that statement. I'm sure you've never seen my ring before either. I'm pretty sure that. I haven't. But you know what? Uh, I feel like I saw your your little, your your band hat. What was that thing that all the West Pointer? Oh, yeah. Yeah. But I was gonna say, you know what? Here. I bet none of those individuals ever wore that. We were just kind of glorified. We're doing the same thing. They're now general officers, and we're just, oh my god, these guys are amazing. So everything we said at the beginning of the podcast, we're full of shit. Just disregard. It just um, depends. It's all relative. I've never seen those individuals or heard that they were in units where they wore stetsons. Uh, Who knows? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if they've ever worn a stetson. So I, I've you never know, worn a stetson. I, they can't be that cool, you know? They never, yeah, I've never uh, won a Stetson before. Well, yeah, and uh, you're a piece of shit. 
You didn't never have to uh, take the whatever the cowboy hat front brim is and bring it down with your these weird uh, little antennas that you would have that people would have for different branches or if you were an officer or bling out the back of your Stetson with all of the goofy shit and stickers. It's like the, the the person that has like their entire ERB, ORB on the back of the car are the same people that on a Stetson have a pin from every single unit they've ever worked in as if like it wasn't apparent on their chest what badges that they have. They're going to put it on their hat as well. Same guys that wear that out to a bar in Colleen, Texas. Fort Hood, be better. Also find your nods. Oh, they never <laughs> will. Those are good. <laughs> um, this is a good episode. What else, anything else you want to talk about? CrossFit Games starts next week. Yeah, on uh so I, I like how they do the cuts this year. Yeah, it's I do going like 40, 40, then down to thirty for day three, down to twenty on Saturday, and then staying twenty through Saturday, Sunday. Um, which I think is awesome because yeah. When you get it down to, like, I think they've been doing, like, five or ten the last couple of years, it it makes it almost impossible for anyone to to actually overcome point deficits at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, and people can kind of, like, I think it's one of the only reasons that Noah Olsen honestly finished on the podium one year. Like, because, you know, he sucked at some movements, but there was nobody else to separate him from, you know, Matt Fraser. Right. right. Um, but, yeah, yeah, let's let's go Chandler. Uh, speaking of cool earrings that people have gotten and nose rings when they got out and cool hair, like friend friend of the podcast, uh, yeah, I I actually was uh, on Dave Casho's like Instagram where he announced the or the CrossFit Games where they announced the the cuts game, and like all the comments underneath there are like, no, all the athletes deserve to go to the final day, you know. Every there should be no cuts. Everyone deserves to play, and it's just like the same, you know. The same. Uh, you I'm know, still blocked argument. by Dave Castro, by the way. Are you? Yeah. Uh, I don't. <laughs> he got really upset at something I posted. I can't remember <laughs> what it was. This was like years ago. Oh, I think I called him out for uh, for loving Brooke Wells and. Oh yeah, maybe. Yeah. That sounds familiar. I can't believe I'm still blocked. Why All would the he content unblock that you? I created. Why would he? Un- oh yeah, true. Why would uh, he unblock me? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that's I've made it. <laughs> I've made it in America. Yeah, but it's just like uh, you know the whole like participation trophy generation where everyone's like all up in arms. I think it's on the CrossFit Games Instagram where on the he where he's explaining the cut scheme. All the comments are like, all the athletes deserve to make it to the final day. I hate the cuts. No more cuts. Let the athletes all compete. And it's just like. At the end of the day, at the, on the final day, like, if you're in the fourth heat, like, nobody's watching you anyways. You're just there, you know? No, absolutely. I I think uh, CrossFitters are one of those people. Two, I, I've watched, like, some of the uh, the prep tournaments to get in. I don't know anybody. Yeah. Like, I, I honestly couldn't name you five male CrossFitters, they, even if I probably could. Like, Patrick Vellner, Fikowski... Fraser, that's it. But Fraser Fraser's isn't competing. Uh, for the women, the the daughters, Tia Claire. Which daughters? It's changed. Uh, David's and Thoris. But no, I don't know. only only David's daughter is the only daughter that's competing this year. Oh well, there we go. Kara uh, Saunders. Uh huh. Um, Tia Claire Toomey. 
Brooke Wells, uh, Amanda Barnhart. For oh, Koski is Koski a male one? Yeah. Um, yeah, obviously Chandler Smith. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Oh, by the way, too, again, I was just checking on our on our Chronosfit one. I think he's blocked Chronosfit as well. God damn. Is that me again? Did, That's did 100% I, you. Did I cross the line again? 100% you. Now, oh, we'll no. never, now we'll never make it. We're never going to be tagged. We're never going to be asked to come in and run a fitness workout like uh, Go Ruck. Man, we've really missed an opportunity for marketing here, guys. Thanks, our, our IPO is not going to come out this year. Thanks, Sean. Uh, Sorry, guys. But yeah, CrossFit Game starts next week. I'm actually kind of interested to just see who wins it. Um, I am not going to buy the new CrossFit documentary because I think it's just the same trash year after year. Like, nobody cares. This year's just going to be, with the impacts of COVID-19, CrossFit's future was in the balance after comments made by former owner Greg Glassman. Would CrossFit ever come back? And then it's going to be like a we at CrossFit really had to make a change and a commitment. And it'll show like Dave Castro sitting in his barn like, yeah, our programs had to be socially conscious. Like, that's really what I focused on. He's not following us anyway, right? So why do we care if we talk shit on Dave Castro now? You know, and then <laughs> then it'll show like, you know, uh, the guys that do the commentating for CrossFit. It'll probably have like a, a Brooke Entz throwback just oh. because of oh. Marston and no, then it'll be like where's CrossFit going forward and it's going to be like a bunch of athletes that don't matter whatsoever that are you know working hard at every box around the country it's going to be a feel good movie and we're going to have seen it every single year since behind the games ever started so long story short I'm not purchasing it either but I'll probably purchase it or rent it I don't know I don't all of CrossFit has just been like you know a little. It's gotten way. We talk about it like on 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 the. It's group soft. Chat. CrossFit's gone soft. It used to be like this, like kind of, um, outs like the outskirts, kind of like uh, outcast like fitness regimen, where people prided themselves, prided themselves on tearing their hands up. Like I can remember like when I first started in CrossFit, like the first couple of years of CrossFit, it was like I prided myself and I tore my hands started bleeding and that was like a thing where people were like yeah this dude's badass he tore his hands up yeah yeah he pushes himself hard yeah and now it's just like oh what shoes are you gonna wear oh I got this shoe for this this shoe for this I wear these clothes I've got all this gear I've got the belts got the wraps got the grips got all this all this stuff yeah I've got the three millimeter uh, knee sleeves because we're doing uh, you know a hundred wall balls for this exercise but when I have to go and run the 400 meters between the sets I'm gonna roll those down around my ankles so that my knees don't get too hot and sweaty and obviously I'm gonna start with my shirt on but take it off and then you've got the women of CrossFit that are like I'm gonna wear referee socks from soccer games and I'm going to wear a little mini cape around my neck so that when I'm getting tired during the workout, I can kind of just like slack off and be like, this is just my goofy day, girls. Uh, or the like super huge dude that's just going to be like, you know what? Like if the weights were heavier, like I would be winning every single thing. If my technique was just a little better, I could easily do, uh, you know, Fran in, in under 30 seconds. CrossFit sucks now. I am. I'm so annoyed with the the way that boxers are going, or the way that they act. That you have to do like every single one of these classes to get the benefit of it. No, like CrossFit. I feel like it's the same what Cronus Fit, you know, tries to be, 
and the fact that you're going to learn some things, go and apply them. Like you don't need to rely on us. You don't need to rely on CrossFit for the rest of your life to figure out what, you know, a healthy fitness program looks like. Just figure out, just put the time in, learn how to do it, and then go get a garage gym or figure out, or do some other thing else. Yeah, we're buying the shoes every single year. I mean, it, let's face it, CrossFit's not doing a ton of, of running. So when they come out with these, the Reeboks or uh, the Nike shoes and now Noble every single year, it used to be you only had to replace your shoes if you would run like, you know, a couple hundred miles on them. So how is just doing some basic movement in those shoes a couple times a week destroying the flexibility or the support that those shoes provide where a year from now you're going to have to get the exact same thing in a different brighter color combo so that everybody sees your stupid shoe when somebody rocking the Metcon 4s or sorry, the the um, the Nano 4s would have still whooped your ass because those shoes are still fine. Everybody's trying to be all trendy. Yeah, and definitely you wear Noble sometimes. I know you have some of those shoes. I wear them or just for walking around shoes. I just like how they look for literally for walking around. I actually hate them for working out. I don't think they're good workout shoes at all. <laughs> yeah, yeah. but now now people are like, you know, I, I like the uh, jokes with the, the, what was it, the Suez Canal that got all blocked up, and yeah. they were like, well, there's all the Noble shoes. Like, people aren't going to have their uh, their shoes for the games. They're like, uh Nobles are like, they're stupid expensive. They're like 140 bucks a pair of Nobles. I don't think they're that like comfortable to work out in. One, two, I don't think they're very high quality shoes. When three, it's like, why would I pay 140 dollars for a pair of Nobles that are like kind of shitty quality, where I can wait until the next year's Nanos or Metcons are on sale, buy for 50 bucks or 40 bucks, and have like a brand new pair of shoes for 40 or 50 bucks from the last year model. I still have my Nano Eights in the black with the the gum colored uh, oh, yeah, yeah. soles yeah. those suck those are awful to run in. I actually, they're terrible running but those are like my favorite nanos to like work out in oh phenomenal to lift in like absolutely yeah. phenomenal to lift in squatting like those are one of the shoes that i stopped using uh my ollie shoes because i thought i was cool uh because i got the exact same mobility and stabilization out of them like did not need the the platform kicks yeah. Oh, yeah. But uh, back to CrossFit, the the bear grips that people wear for um, bar movements as if they're like lifelong gymnasts. If I'm watching people at the Olympics that are gymnasts that aren't wearing those stupid bear grips for their hands, you don't need them for the 20 failed muscle up attempts that you're going to do. do. Gym- they do have gymnastics grips, though. They do wear grips. If you're going to wear those grips, you better be in the Olympics. Yeah, yeah, put it that way. That's a better way of putting it. Edit that out. I don't want to sound <laughs> stupid. They do wear grips in the Olympics, dude. Never wear grips. No. Um, Just anyways. like bicyclists don't wear helmets. Oh, I've got, I think, uh, speaking of biking, I think I've got upwards of like around maybe 2,000 miles of biking like for the whole year. Um. The Tour de France in 28 days, 21 days, did 3,100. I feel awful about myself. I think I mean, we should not, cancel, the, cancel the Tour de France. Cyclists. Cancel the Tour de France for making me feel like I'm not a real bicyclist, bicycler, a bikey. Cyclist. Cyclist. Cycler. Come on. All right. I don't even know my own names anymore, my own sport pronouns. All right, we're gonna let's wrap it. We're starting to ramble now. (laughs) 
Yeah. If you're still listening, good for you. Yeah. We're going to ramble as usual. When we get an hour into it, we start rambling a little bit. Um, yeah, announcements, apply for the scholarship. That's about it. I don't know. Oh, uh, last question, because when people listen to us to wonder if we're actually going to purchase olive green uh, over black for the the ranger panties with the logo. Oh, yeah. Uh, I don't know. I think it's got to be black. Because they're just out of they're, they've been out of stock for a while yeah. enough for the largest, so we could we could do the OD green, but yeah. we had to we we should get the hats maybe going. Christina wants to do Nalgene bottles, like Nalgene bottles, like kind of logo on them. Yeah, I'd be down for that. Yeah, I'll talk I'll talk to Greg. Hats maybe. Yeah, like there's a summer hat shirts, that I've, new shirts or whatever. Yeah, I could, uh, I because we got another logo on the shirts that we haven't launched yet. Correct. correct. Guys, see this? This is what business people do behind the scenes business inventories bottom line alright anyways uh, enjoy watching the Olympics you know the uh, epitome of human performance uh, and uh, we'll catch you guys next time yeah and next time you talk to a general you know don't act like they're somebody cool unless that they are but if they're not they're not yeah Shit bag is shit bag either way. All right, guys. See you guys next week. Peace. Later.